Hello and welcome to the MicroSamplify podcast, a partner to the microsampling blog from Neoterics. Listen in as we hear from key thought leaders in research science and medicine testify to the powers of microsampling in their industry. Hello. For this episode of the MicroSamplify podcast, we are speaking with Ben Herbert, PhD a research scientist with nearly 40 years of experience in protein chemistry, sample preparation, fractionation, and the use of proteomics. Dr. Herbert also had many years of experience in technology development and commercialization of biotechnology products and has co-funded companies in biotech and healthcare industries. Currently, he he is the co-founder and chief scientific officer at Sanguibio in Sydney, Australia. They're based at the Colling Institute at Royal North Shore Hospital. Dr. Herbert's recent research focus is on cytokines, which we, we, which we will be discussing today. Hello, Dr. Herbert, and welcome to the MicroSamplified podcast from Neoterix. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us about your work at Sanguibio. Thanks, James. Nice to be with you. Thank you. So chronic inflammation, often studied by cytokines, is a predicate of many conditions such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and neurological disorders. Your company, Sanguibio, is a pioneer in the field of inflammatory biomarkers. And your studies have shown that red blood cells have a role to play as carriers of cytokines. Can you discuss the role of cytokines in this regard and how microsampling has helped you identify biomarkers or risk factors for developing chronic inflammation and certain health conditions? Sure. So, the, like you say, cytokines are incredibly important. And if, if you look in the literature, there's hundreds of thousands of papers that talk about cytokines and quantify them in, in almost every disease that you can think of. Uh, and the work that led us to the studies we're doing now was to do with arthritis and looking at the role of cytokines in people with osteoarthritis. And they were being treated with stem cells for osteoarthritis. And my group was interested in blood levels of inflammatory and anti-inflammatory cytokines. and Ultimately, we were looking at things that were irregular depending on how we prepared blood samples, looking at things like either plasma or serum. And so the experiment we did way back in 2014 was simple. It was really just to freeze whole blood and then centrifuge out the cell debris and analyze the cytokines in that. And there were a range of cytokines that turned out to be at much higher levels than we expected when we did that. And it turned out that red blood cells were the sort of driver of that. And the student working on that is still working for us. She ended up being one of the co-founders of Sanguibio, um, Elizabeth Carsten. So what she found when she went to the flow cytometer and purified mm. different cell populations was that red blood cells had much higher levels of a whole range of cytokines and chemokines that we typically look at 
um, particularly in the in the blood of the people that we were looking at, which at that stage <laughs> was our own blood because it was the easiest thing to get. Um, so we went on and looked at a pretty wide range of cytokines and we've published a few papers now that show that um, in many people, not not every single person, there are there can be between you know three or four times up to a thousand times higher levels of some cytokines and chemokines associated with the red blood cell component. Um, so that then becomes really important if you want to think about those in relation to disease. Mm. So for a number of years after that, the work we did was really focused on fractionating blood simply and quickly and looking at the red blood cell component and sometimes the platelets and white cells and the plasma. And that that's interesting and you get quite deep and detailed data doing that. However, it's very difficult to scale that into looking at hundreds or thousands of people. And that's what really led us to start looking at microsampling because our idea was that microsampling, of course, is whole blood, particularly if you use a dried blood spot. Uh, and ultimately that led us to neoterics and using mm. Mitra. Um, and we've been working with Mitra now exclusively, really, for a few years. And our theory was and still is that if you can get liquid blood from people occasionally when they come into a clinic, you can then get dried blood spots from them when they're at home. And the combination of the liquid blood and the dried blood spot gives you the sort of best of all worlds. You've got longitudinal sampling where you're seeing everything and you've got um, periodic liquid samples where you can investigate the blood more deeply to mm. get a better understanding of what happens and what why are you seeing the answers that you're getting from the dry blood spot because often they're different. And and they allowed you to do that fractionation of the you know the the, the cells against the um the, the, the plasma but but equally just illustrates from your previous work that how important you know measuring the whole blood sample is because of these concentrations of cytokines and other molecules that um, would normally be centrifuged away in favor of me measuring just 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 plasma levels well yeah that's right and and of course none of these things are static so there's not really a situation that we can see where the level that's in the plasma and the white cells and the platelets and the red cells is static and will just happily sit there while you process the sample. So time is important in sample processing to make sure that you're getting reproducible, sensible, biologically relevant answers. But then inside the body there's this dynamic exchange and that's been well documented looking at other cell types of you know that's what cytokines are they're proteins involved in cell to cell signaling and so of course that's dynamic so we yeah. we should expect that that will change over time and that's why microsampling and longitudinal sampling is so relevant and important because it enables us to do that in a way 
that you just simply can't do by bringing people into a clinic. Yeah, you're making the you know the individual become their own control in a sense, aren't you, by doing that? Which kind of brings us nicely onto my next question, actually, which is, I, I believe you provided microsamples and developed protein profiles that include cytokines in a way to identify biomarkers for obesity and hereditary uh, risk factors of disease. Could you expand a little bit more on, on this work? Sure. So we, we had a partner we were working with um, in 2018 and 19, and their interest was really the role of chronic inflammation in the development of the kinds of lifestyle diseases that you see now, um, notwithstanding that there's a global pandemic, but in in normal times, what you've seen in the developed world over the last kind of 50 years is um, a real acceleration towards people dying of lifestyle diseases and the the chronic effect that that has on their life, the health systems, productivity, and and all of those things. So chronic inflammation, elevated inflammation over long periods plays a role in the development of those diseases like cardiovascular disease, um, kidney failure, diabetes. Um, So they wanted to look, the partner we were working with wanted to look at how would you measure these things in people using microsampling? And would the answers that you got be relevant? Would they be similar to what had been seen in other studies where you know people had clearly shown that chronic levels of inflammation were associated with these sorts of diseases? Um, so this study was completely done remotely. The, the people were all healthy so the initial stages of this we wanted to just do it in in healthy people but we accepted any um any weight so it didn't matter whether people were um, in the healthy weight range all the way up to obese as long as they um, said that they were not heavily reliant on medical care they could join the study the recruitment was all done over social media um, and so we never saw these people they were sent the instructions and the kits through the post they posted them back and the success rate we had in terms of filling the tips was great we were you know at sort of 85 percent success of people filling at least one mitra completely uh and we were using 30 microliter mitras at the start, we sampled people more frequently. We sampled them about half a dozen times in the first um, two and a half weeks to really try and get a view of how were they varying and what, how could we set their baseline, and then went to monthly sampling after that. And we genotyped everybody from dried blood spots from Mitra as well, and we were we had 100% success of extracting enough DNA from a tip to get genotyping done. And that was done using a thermo um, SNP array that was one of the ones based on the UK Biobank uh, studies. And that was done uh, at the Ramachotti Centre, which is at the University of New South Wales here in Sydney. And we, we didn't have enough people in the study 
to really do a genome-wide association here, what we really wanted to prove was that, yes, in our hands, this would work, that you could get sufficient DNA of good quality to do genotyping, and that was clearly the case. So, you know, we were pleased that that was true. And since then, of course, there have been other groups that have we've interacted with right up to now who are very interested in being able to genotype from Mitra. So that that was useful to prove that that really worked. And that was all yeah. done with just off the shelf kits. And, and the reason we were interested in genotyping was that an Italian group had published some genome wide association studies looking at inflammation in quite large populations of people from Sardinia, so, you know, five or 6,000 people at a time. Mm. And they'd shown that there were a range of genes associated with chronic inflammation. Um, so we were of the view that, you know, if you were doing large studies, you really should be looking at that to enable you to stratify people in that way to understand yeah. the genetic predispositions and then look at lifestyle factors and longitudinal blood sampling. And and the results that we found were, were broadly what we expected to see, that there were correlations between obesity and um, chronic inflammatory protein levels. Mm. Uh, and that within that, of course, there's always subgroups of people. But broadly speaking, this study was quite successful. We found what we expected to see that there were correlations. We showed that Mitra was a really effective way of getting samples from people. Um, it was broadly stable, so you could uh, collect and receive samples, um, store them in the lab until you were ready to go, uh, and and it worked generally. What it's led us on to is a range of other studies now that are still ongoing, um, mm. looking at stability of particular analytes and are there um, good or bad ways of storing or shipping samples and, and which individual analytes vary the most so that we've got a good understanding of that. But that was probably our first sort of large scale study that really confirmed to us that this worked and that Mitra was a good way to go. It's, yeah, it's incredible to think of it, you know, uh, that you're able to, given current technology, that you're able to do proteogenomic measurements from tiny little volumetrically collected blood samples. It's, you know, you think back to what, what things were like just, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Uh, it's amazing how technology has allowed us to to move, move forwards. You're, um, you mentioned um, also, obviously, we're in a global pandemic and and we understand that uh, cytokines are small proteins that are important in self-signaling and the one thing they do is to mediate community uh, communication among um, immune and non-immune cells to help the body's immune and inflammatory responses what's the significance of this in covid19 yeah it, it's interesting i think in in covid19 uh you know you mentioned the non immune cells and COVID-19's a, a respiratory problem uh, and it's really affecting people's respiratory system in their lungs. And so when you look in the literature here, the, the two cell types that come up 
the most often are the endothelial and epithelial cells of the respiratory system in the lungs. And those are the cells that are non-immune, but they're releasing cytokines. And it seems to be that what's occurring in, in COVID is a, a dysregulation of cytokine signaling and macrophages appear to be pretty central to this and you're getting a, a mm. shift in the um, the polarization I guess of, of macrophages from inflammatory to anti-inflammatory or, or the other way around and so that's really when you think about non-immune cells that's what's in the literature of course our interest here is what role might red bloods cells play in this and of course what are red blood cells what's their primary kind of job that everybody thinks about is red blood cells are carriers of uh, carbon dioxide and oxygen where does that happen in the lungs and what are they interacting with they're interacting with the endothelial and epithelial cells in your lungs so we think there's likely to be a role for red blood cells and their um, activities in terms of being carriers of cytokines. Um, we've been involved in a project getting COVID-19 blood samples and we've processed a bunch of samples and they're away in the freezers here and at the hospital. And one of the the great things about what's happened in Australia is there's not been that many people who have got COVID and had very severe um, mm. effects. And there hasn't been that many people who've died. And, and so that's meant that getting access to large numbers of people with severe uh, disease hasn't been that easy. But what's turned out to happen is that this business of long COVID that, that people are suffering um, seems to be less related to how acute and severe their disease was in the initial phases. So people with relatively mild initial COVID are still having long-term effects and, and I don't know that that's particularly well understood. So we're really waiting now for the clinicians we're working with to come back and and sort out which samples we really need to go ahead and look at. Um, and I think ultimately, whilst Mitra hasn't played a huge role in this so far, I suspect that it will once we start to understand what kinds of questions need to be asked, there will be a, an expanded role for microsampling in trying to understand this um, there's a new study that here that's also just started on looking at the effect of COVID vaccines on people, particularly ones who might ha already have a comorbidity, say like cancer, what happens when they get vaccinated. Um, and we've got some involvement in that as well. Thank you for listening to part one of our interview with Dr. Ben Herbert of Sangua Bio in Australia. To learn more about Dr. Herbert's research into cytokines, immune responses, and microsampling, please listen to part two of his interview with Dr. James Rudge at www.neoterex.com.